Father, your word is phenomenal. Help us to believe that. It is an absolute stunning thing that you would speak and that you would, in your kindness, have your word recorded in this book. Help us to come to it with just a sense of awe, of hunger, of humility, of submission. Make it louder than any of the scary things going on in the world or in our own worlds. What we need most this morning is a renewed confidence in the victory of Christ. So would you make Jesus very loud in our songs, in our prayers, in communion, during the sermon, in our benediction as we are commissioned from this place in the grace of Christ. Make him loud throughout this week until we gather back again as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. By far the um, most scared I've ever been in my entire life was in the hospital as Katie was giving birth to our oldest daughter. And I've shared this story a bunch of times, and I won't go into any of the details with it. Um, But I was terrified. There's a real sense of dread, a real sense of worry, this raw feeling of helplessness. And it was because I truly thought I was going to lose both of my girls in one moment. And uh, by God's grace, they, they survived. Everything turned out really good. Um, but I had a new thought about it this week as I was looking at this text and I was kind of reflecting back on that experience. Um, if I knew going into that day, everything that was going to happen, that we would start with our birthing plan and then things would go sideways and, and we, that Emma would get stuck and we'd have to get transferred. And as we sat in, in the room and, and to see the worry on her face and see the heart rate monitors drop and see the, all the, this huge group of nurses and doctors come in speaking in muffled tones in the corner with all sorts of equipment getting geared up and, and to see the look of, of concern and worry on the face of our midwife but I knew that they would be fine. How would that have changed that experience for me? Like in the face of something that was so bad, to know that something so good was coming, how would it have helped the the moment of it being so bad? You know, in other words, we can maybe ask it this way. When things go badly, how can knowing ultimately that everything will work out really, really good help? We're finishing our series on Daniel today by diving into chapter 7, and it opens with a genre of scripture known as apocalyptic literature. This is often the the genre of scripture that that is the most difficult and challenging for God's people to get their heads around because there's all sorts of images and, and, and symbols and numbers and like, what are we supposed to do with it? So let me give you a definition of apocalyptic literature that I think is very helpful by James Smith out of a book called Desiring the Kingdom, just to orient us to this text before we, we read it. Apocalyptic literature, the sort you find in the strange pages of Daniel in the book of Revelation, is a genre of scripture that tries to get us to see or see through the empires that constitute our environment in order to see them for what they really are. Unfortunately, we associate apocalyptic literature with end times literature, as if its goal were a matter of prediction. 
but this is a misunderstanding of the biblical genre. The point of apocalyptic literature is not prediction, but unmasking. It's kind of funny that we're using that now on a day when we just took our masks off as we're about to dive in apocalyptic. Ooh, it seems kind of... All right. No, it's just pastor dad jokes. Um, it's not prediction, but unmasking, unveiling the realities around us for what they really are. So apocalyptic literature is a genre that tries to get us to see the world on a slant and thus see through the spin, to see what's really there behind what's really there. Um, three things we're going to look at today. Things are worse than you think. If you're a visitor, welcome to Redeemer. <laughs> i get you a t-shirt that says that. Um, things will get better than you can even dream. And at the middle of all of it is King Jesus. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me? Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, we'll read to, to verse 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked at its wings, were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Feel free to grab a seat. I'm sure those verses need no commentary. They're all apparent of what they are, um, but maybe it's helpful to give a little bit. Uh, the, these four winds from heaven... They stir up this great sea, and the sea during this time, in, in, in the context both of, the, of um, God's people but also pagan cultures, the sea was seen as a place of chaos and rebellion to God. And so out of this place of chaos and rebellion, we have these beasts come out of the sea. There's a first one, it's, it's like a lion with, with eagle's wings that are torn off, and, and then it's caused to stand up and begin to function like a, like a man. Then we see this bear devouring kind of up on its side, like it's ready to attack. It's got three ribs in its mouth. And even though it's eating, it's still commanded, go get more. It's this picture that is never satisfied with destruction. You have this leopard with wings. It's fast. It can go anywhere. It's got four heads. It can see anywhere. There's no place that you can go to escape it. And then you have this fourth beast. The language that he uses in this text, it's terrifying, as if the last ones weren't. It's dreadful. It's exceedingly strong. 
It's got iron teeth. Like now we're just like taking things, like you can't find that in the animal world. This isn't even like a composite of the natural world. This is something altogether different. Then you have these horns. And in the Bible, horns were a symbol of strength. These 10 horns and then, then a little horn that, that comes up. And there's something different about that horn. Let me give you a word of caution here. And while we started with what is apocalyptic literature, this is where things can get really, really crazy. And things can go sideways in a hurry. Because what we do is we sit there and we try to identify, okay, what person or what kingdom or what nation is represented by the different composite beasts. And it kind of makes sense. We're in Daniel 7. If you go back to Daniel chapter 2, there was a dream and there's a statue that kind of had four parts. And it seems like, okay, now this is four animals. Maybe it relates to the same things there. And in that one, we know the, the, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar because the Bible tells us. So maybe the first one here is Nebuchadnezzar and he kind of goes crazy in Nebuch- or in chapter 4. And then he, he kind of acts like an animal, but then he comes back to his senses. Okay, that makes sense. And then from there we go, okay, well, what's the next kingdom? And maybe we get to the, the, the Medes and the Persians. And then we could maybe get to Greece. And maybe we get to Rome. And And I'm not saying that's not what it's talking about, but I think it actually misses the point. It's not prediction. It's unmasking. That's why there's so much debate. Because we can look back on the history of the world, and could we only say that those were the only nations that were ferocious and devoured? Could we not go to the killing fields of Cambodia? Could we not go to the atrocities in Rwanda? Could we not stamp a text like this upon Nazi Germany? Could we not look at the invasion of Ukraine and Putin? Begin to draw some connections. Could it be America? The text helps us. If we go down to verse 17, it, it helps us to see what are these beasts? It says... These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. It's saying they are, they are, they are military powers. They're, they're, they're the forces of a nation. I love the way uh, Ian DeGreed says in his commentary on Daniel, he says, the vision declares that our world is being run by a succession of fearsome monsters that will go from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the one before. Things are worse than you think but they're about to get worse. It's worse than abusive leaders and abusive governments. Let me read a few more verses. Uh, verse 19 through 21 and 23 through 25. Uh, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, And the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, listen to this, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It's attacking God's people. Go to verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. For the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. 
So who is it? Like, what's energizing the evil that we see around us? Does it just come from nowhere? Alistair Begg, in his book on Daniel, I think makes a very compelling case to connect what's going on here, this little horn that speaks blasphemous things, speaks against the Most High, rails against the church. He would, he would argue that it's the same figure that you have if you go to your New Testament, the last third of the Bible in a letter in 2 Thessalonians, when it talks about this man of lawlessness. Or if you go to 1 John, you would hear the phrase, the Antichrist or Antichrist. Or you go to Revelation and see repeatedly this sort of beast images. Or you go to Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, you see all sorts of overlap. And here's here's the point. Where Where do these figures' power come from? From the evil one. Behind all the evil is an evil one. Now, I get it. Um, Like, we're... 21st century people, we follow science. We're the science, right? The science. That's what we do. This doesn't make sense, all this superstition, but what God is trying to do is unmask us so that we could see things as they actually are. Things are worse than we think. I love this line from Martin Lloyd-Jones from The Christian Warfare. He says, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today lies in the fact that the devil is being forgotten. Or as usual suspects, the movie says, the greatest trick the, ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. But the Bible doesn't want us to stay confused. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want, we are outmatched, greatly outmatched, but we're not alone. That's the message of Daniel over and over and over again in the face of all the darkness and all the evil and all the chaos. Right in the middle of the nightmare, God shows up. If you, go, if, if you, you look at this text and you see this nightmare and then it ends with this interpretation of this nightmare, but right in the middle, God shows up. As I looked, verse 9, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I look then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I look, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, things are scary. If, if I was preaching this four weeks ago, many followers of Christ throughout the, the world, many people would have been clued into that. It's sometimes harder. It feels insulated. But what's happened the last couple of weeks, it just seems so clear. What do we do with this? What do we do? Because the enemies are fierce. And they're energized and empowered with such deep darkness. 
You finish the verses. That's what you do. You finish the verses. So let, me, let me do the pairing. I, I left off a few verses when I read earlier. We'll do verse 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Let's do verse 21 and following. As I look, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verses 25 and following, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. No matter what things look like, no matter what laws are passed, no matter what chaos is happening, whatever is going on that is unsettling you, finish the verses. God wins. God wins. Apocalyptic literature, what it's supposed to do is provide a theology of hope. It's not supposed to wig us out. My wife was telling me after the first service, she goes, and I've had this experience too, for sure. She says, you know, as a, as a Christian, particularly as a newer Christian, these passages of Scripture, I didn't like to read them because they scared me so much. But they're not meant to scare you. They're actually meant to, to comfort and embolden you that God is God. That's why God's right in the middle of this chapter, right in the middle of the dream, right in the middle of this world, right in the middle of your world. It's hope. It's this this hope that's thrust into a hospital room as you think the love of your life is going to die. And to know beyond knowing that Christ has conquered Satan's sin and death. And no matter what happens here, there's a new creation coming where we will rise to new life, where death cannot take us anymore. I got a message from the Pascals this morning who are a family from our church who are in Moldova. If you've looked at a map recently, you'll see that Moldova borders Ukraine on the southern part. It's been incredible to see what they have done and the church and that country has done as they are welcoming millions of refugees spreading out all over the place. Their, their home has been just an just a, it's, it's a impromptu Airbnb for anybody that'll come. I mean, they've had multiple families come through their home and they're, they're, they're this grassroots movement of Christians that are just feeding and, and, and caring for and giving rides and shuttling. They're like travel agents trying to figure out, okay, how do we help you get, okay, you have family maybe in Poland, okay, how do we get you there and how do we help you escape here and there's a family from Nigeria and that they were in, in Ukraine, okay, where do we take you? What do we, what do, we do? And it was just so stunning to me in, the, in this message, they, they were just like, hey, we're, we're gonna stay in serve or we might have to flee and serve, but we're going to keep serving. And they're like, if, if, we, if we have to leave because the bombing starts, just tell us a church that we can go to so we can keep serving people in the name of Christ. It was just stunning to me. And I sit there and go, they know they need hope. They know it because they're right on the front lines of it. We need to know it. We get it by looking to the one on the throne. The Ancient of Days is a description of God 
It's a really interesting text because the Bible doesn't do a whole lot of describing God. It really cautions us against it. And so these descriptions are really important. He's on this, this throne, his clothing and hair, it's white as snow, it's, to, to, it's about purity and wisdom. There's all these fiery flames, and the throne actually has wheels. It's like, a, it's like a fiery chariot, and from it is fire flowing. It's fire everywhere, purity and strength and might. There's a thousand thousands, and there's 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million likely angelic beings. And it's a courtroom scene. The court had sat in judgment and the books were open, saying the great judge is going to bring an end to all the nonsense and all the bullies and all the tyrants and all the evil. As I looked, the beast was killed. God in all his power and might and purity and wisdom and righteousness, he will exercise justice and judgment and no one can stay his hand. This is a scene, hit me a couple days ago, this is a scene that is, is, a, is a description of the answer to this prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The king reigning. Ian DeGuid summarizes like this, he says, here we see a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, the purity to choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgments. I was sitting in Makeworth um, uh, coffee shop down um, on State Street on Friday, and I was working on the sermon. I was kind of up in, on the top and mezzanine level, and just staring at this text, and, and Handel's Messiah popped into my head. Um, it was written in um, 1741, and what it retells is the drama of salvation. It walks through the Bible all the way to the consummation, to the new creation. Um, and there's this, um, this practice that happens when, when the hallelujah chorus, towards the end of the, 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 the work, there's this hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, it, it means, it's a, it's a Hebrew phrase, and it means, let us praise Yahweh. Let us praise the unmade God. It's this invitation, would you come praise Him? for his greatness and his grandeur. And it just says it over and over and over and over again. And then there's these, these lines that get inserted in, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You got to say it like that. Because you can't say God is big. <laughs> Sometimes you need like the polysyllabic words to, to try to give us some sense. That's where old English helps. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The end of time, at the edge of, of, of the new creation. Hallelujah. And the choir is hallelujah. Let us praise him. It goes on, the kingdom of this world. It's become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. King of kings. And then the choir, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord of lords. Hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's this text. So what we're going to do, we're going to listen to it. Now there is a, um, and if you don't like classical music, here's the benefit for you. 
there's a study that says it makes you smarter. So at least the next three and a half minutes, you will become smarter. Um, But we're going to play the song, and as we do, it's tradition to stand. King George II, this is legend, we're not sure if this is true or not, but he was at a performance of this, and they get to this end, and hallelujah, hallelujah, it's happening, and and, and, and supposedly he got so moved that he stood up. And then if the king stands, what's everyone else do? They stand too. So the whole room stands. This is an announcement of the king coming. And when the king comes, we're going to stand. And then we're going to bow. And so we'll play it. You you don't have to, but if you feel like you want to stand, and what I hope God does is he, he sanctifies and gives you a holy imagination right now to let this refrain just sing out. Let it be louder and more beautiful and more glorious and more majestic and more true, more true than all the headlines and all the photos and all the doctor visits and all the court cases and all the fear. Let's, let's play this song.
free to grab a seat. You just got to keep the refrain going. You just beat back the darkness. This flaming throne, the ancient of days. You beat back the fear. You beat back the evil. In this text, it's God who does it. Ian DeGuid says, Today we live in a world of terrifying beasts, but we shall not live in their world forever. There will come a day when all wrongs will be set right, when all tyrants will be dethroned, when all that is broken is fixed. There will come a day when all hunger will come to an end, when all sickness will be cured, when every sorrowing heart will be comforted. There will come a day when even death, the last weapon of the beast, will have its power broken once and for all. One of the things that um, I get strangely comforted by in this text is this glorious declaration of the might and power of God, and yet Daniel's still scared. See it in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. We see it in verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He's seeing things as they actually are, and it's distressing. So I want to offer that to you. It's strangely comforting to me, because Daniel is so brave and so strong and so faithful and so devoted to God. And he sees this as it's still hard, though. And hard is just hard, even when we have hope. Quoted David Pallison months ago, but I just think this, this quote is so helpful. God didn't make us stones, so when distressing things happen, we feel distressed. When frightening things happen, we feel fearful. And as you look around the world right now, I know many people are greatly concerned and half bet and will be. When things are out of control, we feel anxious. When things feel hopeless, I'm going to struggle. But there is a God who can meet me exactly at the place of that struggle. It's not just a dream of the beast. It's not just a, a dream of the nightmare. It's not just the monsters. The ancient of days shows up right in the middle of it. It says there is a God. In your unsettled spirits, in your sleepless nights, there is a God. Got a text from Nathan Freeze yesterday. They had their, their baby boy was born a little bit early. Gabriel. And then immediately airlifted down to Children's Hospital. We're just like, we're just trusting God. Gabriel, I believe the, the name means God is my strength. There is a God. There's a God at your workplace. There's a God in your home. There, 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 there is a God at the doctor's office. There's a God at the hospital. There's a God in Ukraine. There's a God in the military. There is a, there is a God. This, this text, for Daniel, it was pointing forward to something for us, and partly it's pointing back and pointing forward to something. It's pointing to the reality of God slaying the beast and a new creation coming. And one of the things we can say with this is your present predicament is not permanent. It's not. 
the new creation will unravel. It will turn, I think, in, in uh, the Lord of the Rings, it says all the sad things will come untrue. That God will wipe away every tear. That death and sickness will be no more. There'll be no war, no famine, no hurt, no harm, no division, no racism, no injustice, no brutality of any kind. Because he shall reign forever and ever. And he's not doing it alone. That's what's in this text. The Ancient of Days shows up, but there's also another one. Verse 13 and following, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Son of man was one of the phrases most used of Christ in the Gospels. This is talking about Jesus, that, that Christ will come, but, but, but notice this in, in this text, he's not coming from the Ancient of Days, he's coming to the Ancient of Days. So this isn't talking about when Jesus came as a baby into a manger, the incarnation, that's gloriously true. This is actually talking about the, 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 where, where the gospel story goes, this is Christ's resurrection and his ascension back to the ancient of days. And I love this contrast in this text between his, his dominion that is everlasting and the temporary reign of these beasts. And in this story, what we're unpacking is this beautiful word called gospel good news. It gets thrown around all the time in the church, but one of the things that's interesting is that actually the word gospel was not originally a church word. It was actually a, a word that was used after a military battle. It was a heralded message. Like if you were in a village and you sent out your son or your husband and they went to war, you didn't have Instagram and Facebook to get, what happened, what happened? Somebody posted. So what they would do is after the battle happened, you were victorious, a herald would go back. And they go back to that village, go back to that city, and they say, the battle has been fought, we have won, we, the victor is, is vanquished. When you think of the work of Christ, sometimes think about it like that. The enemy is vanquished. When Christ was born into a major and then lived a flawless life, a perfect life, a righteous life before God, the, the life we were all called to live, and then he went to a cross where he died in the place of all those who had trusted him, what he did there, he triumphed. What looked like defeat was the triumph over Satan's sin and death, and then they thought they got him, they put him in the tomb, but three days later, the stone rolled away, and Christ rose victoriously. Death is dead. And then 40 days later, he ascends back to the Father. I think that's what we're seeing in this text. He comes back to the ancient of days. The great beast slayer has won. And right now, we're just living between the decisive battle and the claiming of that victory, and it's coming. Each week in this series, and I'll finish with this quickly, there's been some call to action. This series has been designed around, okay, trying to learn what, it like, uh, what it's like to be exiles in a culture and flourish in this fierce and fractured and confusing world. How do we do it? And each week has been some sort of application from Daniel to try to help us have some sense of what to do. This week, 
the call to action is to do nothing. To just sit back. To just sit back. Jesus wins. To sit back and trust the sovereign strength of the Ancient of Days and the saving work of the Son of Man. One of my favorite a couple of verses out of one of my favorite stories in the Bible comes from the book of Exodus where God's people are oppressed by a great superpower. And God intervenes and he, he works in the heart of Pharaoh and Pharaoh lets pe- people go. He lets these millions of God's people go, but then he, he changes his mind after they leave and he assembles the chariots and the weapons and he says, Let's, we got to go chase them down. So they're chasing them down. And coming after all these defenseless people and they're, they're now going to be sandwiched up against a great sea. And they're scared, and rightfully so. This is a fierce army right behind them. But this is God's word to them through Moses, and I believe it's God's word to us. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Christ has come. It's Christ's righteousness and Christ's obedience and Christ's performance. And Christ has died. It's Christ's sacrifice, paying the just debt of our rebellion to God, and Christ has risen. For all those in Christ, death has no claim on you. Alistair Begg says this, the li- this life will not be easy because there is raging around us and neutrality is not an option. Life may get harder. Society may get unfriendlier. Faith in Christ may become still more unacceptable and obedience to Christ still more costly. But the recurring theme of Daniel 7 is that the saints of God will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. Jesus reigns and Jesus will return. We may not understand every part of the picture that Daniel paints in chapter seven, but stand back and see the broad sweep of it. God has won. God wins. And we shall prevail too. Daniel eight, Jesus wins. Daniel nine, Jesus wins. Daniel 10, Jesus wins. Daniel 11, help me out. Jesus. Daniel 12, in 20 and 22, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Let's pray. Father, what a gift to reveal, to expose, to unmask. Help us not be coy with the challenges of this world, but help us not be afraid. Would you let the refrain of this text in the book of Daniel and so many others in your word, that God, you win, that Jesus, you reign. Might it comfort us, might it embolden us, Might it go with us into Monday morning and the rest of this week, whatever is thrown at us. 
Jesus, you told us that in this world we would have trouble. But you also said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray, amen.